session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Now, I have to do some um, housekeeping about the books because on last, I was supposed to do a book last Wednesday, ended up skipping that show. I was feeling a little under the weather and thought it'd be better not to come in. Um, you might still hear it in my voice a little bit. So I was supposed to do a book um, last Wednesday that I'll do tonight, which I'll, I'll get to. But the book of the week from last week that I'll now do Wednesday is Feeling and Knowing by Antonio Damasio. Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious by Antonio Damasio. So that'll be on this Wednesday's show, a new book by Antonio Damasio um, about uh, consciousness and explaining or trying to make sense of consciousness. And then the book of the week from this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. And so, yeah, a little bit of book housekeeping, or we can just call it bookkeeping. Um, things are a little bit out of whack there, but we'll try to make sense of it all. So the book from essentially two weeks ago that I'll talk about tonight is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art, Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. And this is a, a newer book to call it a classic, but it is a classic, especially in the realm of art and artists, but I think it applies to anyone, even if you don't consider yourself a traditional artist, because we really are living an artistic, improvised life in the sense that I think life is like art and that many of the same principles apply. Uh, my brother Parham had recently mentioned the book to me, and I thought, okay, it'll it's time to pick it up and, and read it, and, and it was quite worth the read, so I hope you will um, check it out. The book is broken up into three parts, and I'll kind of delve into each of those parts one at a time. The first section uh, is about resistance, and that's essentially the resistance we have to doing something, and as he puts it, it's almost always something better or good or in the higher sphere. Um, so he says here, Resistance obstructs movement only from a lower sphere to a higher. And he puts resistance, it's almost like a being. It's a, He puts it in a capital R throughout the section and throughout the book, almost like this being we have to fight or conquer. But really it's a being within ourselves in this sense. We are our own worst enemy or we get in our own way. And so he goes through different aspects of resist resistance and it's really quite detailed um, from the, f the fear that is involved to how even other people can be part of the resistance people sometimes hold us back um, but we can understand resistance in some ways um, I, I was thinking about it today of how let's say you want to do something great like especially something artistic that's great and 
it's possible it becomes something very good and has a big effect and you get a lot of positive attention from that, which can be great. Or of course it can go bad and you can have fears of being shamed or um, ostracized, excluded from the group, which is very scary. So as is often the case, we have a negativity bias in the sense that we the negative things, the negative outcomes can seem louder than the positive ones because usually the negative ones, the stakes are higher. So even if we think about your day-to-day life, there are things, of course, infinite ways essentially you can die. And obviously death is final and that's the worst thing as a living being that we can experience. And But there's no equivalent when it comes to living. Yes, someone might save your life, but it's almost like avoiding dying. But even if you are to get abundant resources, even in today's world where you can have incredible wealth, that means you will never have to work or worry about buying anything. It's still, we can't say is the equivalent to dying. It's not really its exact opposite. So we can understand a sort of loss aversion, which we also see in finances, let's say, where it hurts more to lose $100 and it feels good to make $100. We see this in different emotional type of experiences too, that it could feel that, well, yes, it might feel amazing to do something incredible, create a good piece of art, but the fear of it going poorly and those consequences can loom larger. And so we have this, this is part of what he talks about in resistance. These fears come up. Well, what if? Who am I to write something or to do this kind of work of art? Um, Comfort zone to me is another dynamic or aspect of this resistance, which is also a type of survival type of a feeling that it's just, I'm okay, so why do I need to do something different? And I experience this with my clients a lot dealing with different issues. They might bring up something they're unhappy, unsatisfied, unfulfilled in some aspect of their life in some way. And then when it comes time to do something about it, the resistance does come in, which is part of this comfort zone of, well, I'm okay without it, essentially. So, well, I'm okay at the job I'm at. So changing careers or trying to go for a promotion, what's the point? Or I I like what I'm doing. Why should I do something different? Or I feel okay. Why should I go try to make more friends? Or um, I feel okay. Why should I go enter or try to enter relationships where I might get hurt or things can happen. So resistance keeps us away from achieving the things we really want in our lives or the things that would really make us happy because the negative bias is there. And so when I was reading all these descriptions of resistance, I think that becomes abundantly clear. It's safer not to try to create something wonderful, something great, but of course, we miss out and the world misses out, which I'll um, touch on how he makes that point really nicely at the end of the book, when we don't do it. So it does take some effort to go into that. And the fear, as is often the case when we talk about bravery, courage, or always the case, it doesn't go away. You feel the fear, but you go forward anyway. He talks about how the great actor Henry Fonda would vomit before every performance that he would do. The fear didn't go away. He just kept performing. At one point, he was saying he he vomits, he cleans up, and then he goes out and performs. It's not that he lets the fear win in that way. So 
there's a a whole lot here about resistance, the different ways it shows up in our lives, this, the the ways we don't realize it's actually something that's there. For example, right now we're, we are in December in the Gregorian calendar. I'm sure there's many people that are thinking, or of course we're often thinking about making changes in our lives, and who are probably thinking, well, why don't I start January 1st? That's another way of creating resistance or letting the resistance win giving ourselves a reason why now is not the time. And that's procrastination, as he says, is one of the biggest ways that resistance wins, is you think, well, this is the better time to start because it's uncomfortable to change. So we tend to seek comfort. It's a way of keeping the homeostatic balance, keeping things the way they are, feels safer than an unknown almost always. There's always going to be some fear and anxiety when we change things, even if we feel like we know it's better just do, in embracing something new, encountering something new will make us feel anxious. So the first section is about resistance, which I think is a, a, maybe the huge theme of this book is how you have to overcome that, which uh, like very many meaningful things is a lot easier said than done. But he does, I think, give us a great nudge in that direction. So the second section is about turning pro. And this reminded me of a book, I think that was written after this one, Seth Godin's book, The Practice, that I talked about, I believe, maybe it was earlier this year or last year, um, where a lot of, you know, we think about art, and there's a lot in this book that's very romanticized about art, sometimes very beautifully, sometimes I think too romanticized, which I might get to. Um, but in this part of the book, it was the sense that you have to just keep producing, keep doing work which is what Seth Godin also in his book, The Practice, is talking about. Just do it every day. It's not about, um, sometimes there's this vision of an artist that you only work when inspiration strikes. Well, really, inspiration strikes when you keep working and you are open to it striking. If you wait for it to strike and then work, you might have the recipe backwards. You have to keep working, keep doing the thing, and then you get better at the thing and then have moments of inspiration, not only when I'm inspired will I work. To, you know, to me, that's another form or way that resistance gets us. Well, I'm not ready yet. It's not the time. Um, I'll know because it'll feel like the right time or whatever ways we come up with telling ourselves later is better. And here, it's to me, another reminder of the very uplifting words that I've been repeating lately, which is, we're all going to die, meaning that as much as you might think I can always do it later, we don't know when that later will no longer exist or when we will run out of days to do what it is. But it's another way that resistance gets us by making us think there will always be more time for me to do the thing I'm saying I want to do. And the thing is, it never is going to feel quite right because that's what we tell ourselves. Well, it doesn't feel quite right yet, so I shouldn't start it yet. But of course, doing something that's a little bit scary always will feel wrong. If I say, walk into the room that's dark and you have a fear of darkness, it's never going to feel right. You're going to have to go in, even though you're afraid, and face that fear and then hopefully learn it's actually nothing to be afraid of. So this second um, section of the book was really about turning into a pro. And he talks about these distinctions between uh, an amateur and a pro. Now, the third section of the book talks about essentially inspiration. And 
we talk, you might hear of a, um, having a muse, um, which he also talks about the higher realm or he talks about the angels. And here he gets a little bit, uh, I thought, romanticized and thinks that when we look at creativity and inspiration in these moments, it's coming from some other realm, essentially. Although he's not definitive because at some points he also mentions, is it the unconscious? Is it something else? And so here I agree with uh, the individual who wrote um, the foreword to the book. I think it's Robert McKee. Yeah. Robert McKee wrote uh, the foreword for this book, or at least this edition of it that I have. And he was saying how he disagrees with the author, Stephen Pressfield, author of this book, The War of Art, in this aspect that um, the author is saying that it's some other realm that we have to even, he was talking about Stephen Pressfield, his own process where he essentially does say a prayer to the muses um, to ask for this type of, you know, divine or uh, something from a higher realm outside of himself to inspire him in his work. And to me, as Robert McKee says, it might feel in this way supernatural or outside of the realm. Of course, I can't say I know for sure. But to me, what makes sense is it's actually our unconscious, but we are unaware of so much that is there. We can't be aware of um, all of it. We definitely can't be aware of all of it at any moment. That's why we essentially need it unconscious. There's too much to be conscious of in a given moment. Um, and also we haven't accessed so much of it. And on top of that, things are getting recombined and essentially creativity is the combination, recombination of two or more things in a new type of form that hasn't been done before, or at least to you, let's say, hasn't been done. Maybe someone else has done it and you don't know. But that's essentially what creativity is. So it's happening within you but you might not be aware of it. So it's like if something was happening in the upstairs room of your house and then you went in there and found something, well, it wouldn't be that it came from somewhere outside. It just was that you weren't aware of what was there upstairs. So you found something new. Um, So to me, that's essentially what is happening. It's not something necessarily from some supernatural realm. But I do think going back to the second section, it's important to keep working to allow yourself to be open for your mind to keep working. You have to create problems for your unconscious even to solve. If you don't face things, you're not going to have those creative breakthroughs. You have to be thinking about the problems and by problem even could be creating some kind of art or creating a song, a poem, whatever it might be. You have to create the problems in your mind or Uh, create the situations and the circumstances that will allow for this type of recombination and creativity to to explore and explode. And so you have to just keep on working because, again, resistance is not something we overcome once and it's done. It's a constant that can be there. He does um, share the story of when he was finishing a book and having a hard time finishing it and he was having a friend or someone he met who was very encouraging and helping him finish up and at some point He finally finished and the guy said, oh, great, start the second one today. Like, don't even give yourself time to wait or have a break because you might not uh, do it. Now, so we have the unconscious or exactly what part of us is doing it is not clear. And we need to have space to play and to explore. And so here we have to have the first the space to create. And there is that kind of adage of there's no bad ideas. We have to have that freedom that 
We sh- can't be afraid to make a mistake. We can't be afraid to get it wrong. You will get it wrong lots of times in the course of getting it right. You should expect that. Sometimes I think of um, in sports, you, you know, the best basketball shooter probably of all time right now is Steph Curry. And he's very good at three-point shots, but he still misses more than he makes. Usually, uh, even the best are going to be around, like, let's say, 40%. So I mean, they're missing more of them than they make, but they're the best. And so when you're doing something creative, the hit rate might be different, might be far less, actually, a lot of times. But because you're getting it wrong doesn't mean you can't get it right. And sometimes you need to get it wrong a bunch. And I think, actually, you do need to get it wrong a bunch to get it right. So um, I, I thought that part was also important in the book about how you have to give yourself the space. And so... There's this balancing act of giving yourself the space to freely explore, but then using your more judgmental side to then evaluate those things to see which ones are good and bad, which ones to refine and work on, and go from there. Now, when I come back, what I actually wanted to do at a commercial break, I want to do something I haven't quite done before, but the last page of the book to me is quite interesting and has a lot of points that I think are worth diving very deep in. So I'm going to do a deep dive into this last page of the book, which is uh, titled The Artist's Life um, for for the next segment, because it had a lot of points that I wanted to elaborate on. So this is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing on The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And as I said, I wanted to do something a little different. Maybe it's also inspired by this book on art and doing things a little bit different and creative type of things. Not that it's so out of the box of what I normally do, but wanted to focus on one page for a whole segment here and go into different directions with it. So this is the last page of the book titled The Artist's Life. So I'll read the whole page and then uh, go into it in more detail. So are you born, are you a born writer? Let me start that again. Are you a born writer? Were you put on earth to be a painter, a scientist, an apostle of peace? In the end, the question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. It may help to think of it this way. If you are meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself, You hurt your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to God. Creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. And so I really, really liked this last page. That third paragraph there, um, again, got a little supernatural. I might actually leave that out of the deeper dive. But let's go through it from, from the beginning. Are you a born writer? Were you born on earth to be a painter, a scientist, an apostle of peace? In the end, the question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. And so I really like this part, especially that first part. Are you a born writer? And it reminds me sometimes I've thought of when people say something like, oh, 
she was born to do this or he was born to do that. When a situation arises or when something comes up or we just see someone doing their craft. And so it sounds kind of cool and it does feel right. I think that what makes it feel right is that it seems so natural to that person or to yourself if you're doing it, that it seems like you were born to do it. But I think the reason why I think that can be a faulty way of looking at it and dangerous in the sense that it might hold us back is that it doesn't recognize that they weren't born to do that thing. They've worked hard, maybe with some innate talents and abilities within that sphere, but they've had to work hard to get to the point where it's so natural. It's as if they were born to do this thing, let's say a dance or paint, or if they're an athlete, there's a sense that it looks so natural, but we must not be fooled to think that it means they were born to do it. They've worked hard to get to the point where it seems so natural and easy for them. So that part I liked. And also then the part of do it or don't do it. It only can be answered by that, by action. So are you a born painter? Well, again, I don't think you were just born to do it, but it's either you do it or you didn't. You can't on your deathbed, say, I, I'm getting credit for all these things I could have done. It's only for the things we have done. As I've said, in the context of relationships or giving gifts, it's not the thought that counts. The thought that counts is in the sense that if we do something with a good intention, but the result isn't what we wanted. So I, you know, Amir is sitting here in the studio. I use him a lot. He, every time I do, I think he gets a little worried of what I'm going to say. But I bring Amir... Uh, a, a strawberry cake because I wanted to do something nice for him and it turns out he's allergic to strawberries then it is the thought that counts I didn't know and now in the future I won't bring him that but it's, if I told him oh I'm here I was going to do these really nice things for you but I didn't that doesn't have value the thought doesn't count similarly if you have this thought of creating a great piece of art or making some big change in the world but you didn't do it the thought does not count it has no value. It has value when it turns into action. So um, I liked that part. Do it or don't do it. And then he says this paragraph that I've also discussed in many ways. I'm sure others have described this too. When it comes to this feeling that, okay, be an artist because you deserve to be the best version of yourself or to do this amazing thing. And there's truth to that, but it's more than just you deserve it for you. The world actually deserves it in a way, uh, demands or you are responsible to the world. So here's that paragraph again. And it may help to think of it this way. If you are meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself, you hurt your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet. And so sometimes, yeah, simplifying in a way of, let's say, you could cure cancer. You had that potential in you. Obviously, something like that is very complicated, involves many people. But let's say, let's simplify it. If you could cure cancer and you didn't, you can't just say, well, I didn't do something that I could have done. In a way, we can say you've killed people because you could have done something that would have saved their lives and you didn't do it. Yes, it's a bigger picture thing than something in the moment, but we can say that it's similar. So you not making that contribution, it's not about you anymore. It's about what you can do. And we should all think of it in that way, 
that we have this responsibility to the world to share our gifts. And our gifts really, we say our in the sense of self, and that itself is, of course, a conversation that I've talked about a lot on the show, but I won't go down um, that path right now just for the interest of time. But really, the sense of self, are they even your gifts? Really, they're something you can share with the world, and it's our responsibility to do so. So he says, you hurt your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet. Now, most of us, well, probably maybe none of us will just cure cancer. You might not even do anything that has that type of a life-saving benefit or result, or might not be that clear. But there's things we can do. And even here, I don't just mean every one of us has to write a symphony or has to go write a poem or a book or do something artistic in the purely artistic sense of the word, but that we have gifts to share through our love, through our actions, through bringing people together, through infinite ways. And if we don't share those gifts, we can think that we're depriving the world. Let's say you, yeah, you write a song, can we say directly save lives? Sometimes people will say someone's music got me through a very dark time where they might have been, let's say, suicidal or in a really dark place. But even if it makes their life better or if it makes people connect to themselves or loved ones, that has a benefit. That is something that either you can give or you won't give to them. And then going to the last um, paragraph here, creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. And I think that's true that we often can feel that way, that am I asking for attention? Do I want to make it about me? Who am I? And this goes back to the, some of the themes of resistance. Who am I to do this or to want the attention or the spotlight on me? And very often we do have those types of feelings come up, but this is where the intention is important. You're not doing it just for you and the attention, the love, the fame, the money, whatever else that might come with it, let's say within the arts, hopefully you'll be doing it to give something. And this is something that I talk about when I define success, that I think we've had the recipe backwards or the way of measuring it backwards. Usually when we think of someone successful or we think of success, we think of someone who has gotten a lot, who has essentially taken or received a lot. They have a lot of money, fame, attention, notoriety, they get these benefits because of it that, let's say, allows them to go around the world in a certain way. But we think of it usually as what you have. So on how much money do you have in your bank, that's how successful you are, is often how we look at it. But I think we should reverse that, flip it on its head and look at success as how much have you given to the world. So they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Someone who has made a lot of money might have done a lot of good for the world, but it should be the way we focus on it and measure it and think of ourselves and others. Okay, you've created music, not how much money did you make selling music? How has it affected other people? And yes, that's a harder thing to measure. It's not as tangible as album sales or net worth or um, money grossed and concerts, let's say. But that's the way we need to focus on it. And when you make it in that way, you also will have less concern about being selfish because you know you're creating it to give, not to take, not to have. I'm creating music not for the attention I'm getting. I'm creating music so that others will be moved by it, will enjoy it, whatever it might be, depending on the type of music. That can be 
your focus and with that intention, it is not selfish. And we have to be real. Of course, no one minds those byproducts of attention, fame, money that might come with the things that they're doing. So it's not that you have to dislike those things, hate those things, or if you enjoy them, that means that was your intention. No, you can still have the intention of giving, and then these other things that come with it are fine, and it's good for you to enjoy them, but you know, and only you alone, know your intention. And then the last sentence is, uh, it's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. And I really like that part, which is uh, in line with some of the things coming earlier about you hurt the planet when you don't give your gift, but don't cheat us of your contribution. Don't cheat the world of what you have to share. And going back to what I was saying about not being born with it as in the sense that you're just born with it and that's it. When we talk about sharing your gift with the world, it also means developing your craft, developing yourself. So if you want to be that scientist that cures cancer, it's not just that you have the whole formula in your head out of nowhere and you're going to go uh, you know, to the lab and, and make it a reality. It's that you have to work and try and first of all, study sciences and biology and all sorts of things, let's say, and then uh, keep trying and failing and then you'll get there. Or if you are a traditional artist like a singer, it's not just that, oh, you have all these songs and abilities, you have to just go sing and that's it. No, you have to work on your craft. You have to get training often. You have to practice. You have to keep trying. You have to learn from others. You have to study other music to be inspired and come up with something new. So we shouldn't just think it's a passive type of a thing in the sense that all you have to do is show up. We have to, and we owe it to ourselves, but especially to the world, to work on ourselves and to work on our craft, whatever that might be, to the point where it is as if you were born to do whatever it is that you are doing. It's not just some kind of accident. You've worked hard to make it to that point. And, you know, this book is called The War of Art. And if you're listening, you might think, well, I don't paint or sing or that. And first of all, you should do those things anyway, even if you don't think you're necessarily good at it. There's clearly uh, psychological benefits to expressing art. I remember some cheeky titled article that said something like art is good for you, even if you suck at it, which is true. I think the way I look at it is like something like dancing. Everyone feels good when they dance. And, you know, in your car, you're dancing, you're at a party, whatever it is, dancing feels good. It does seem very natural to us. We see babies dancing, just music makes us want to move. But not everyone's dancing is good enough where it should be performed in a stage or recorded and showed to other people. I guess with TikTok, that's happening much more than it was before. But even still, not everyone's dancing is necessarily good as in it's art that would be shared. But it could be beneficial for you. But coming back to this point, you're your art, whatever it is that you have to share with the world, it might not be a traditional art that we're talking about here, but I do really believe everyone has abilities and talents, has these gifts. And again, it's not just innate. Yes, there's something innate, but something you have to work on to develop and then share with the world, whether you are a therapist, of course, that could be itself an art, but ways of doing things, 
whatever profession you have, also in your life as a human being and how you interact with those around you, uh, developing your art and talents and ability as a mother, father, husband, wife, sister, brother, citizen, whatever it is. We all can develop ourselves to become better and stronger and to recognize we owe it to ourselves. But I think even more importantly, we cheat the world if we don't share that. We hurt the world. We hurt those around us and even future generations, really, considering the ripple effects and how things happen over time if we don't share that with the world. So I thought that last page uh, encapsulated a lot of really important points. I wanted to expand on that. Again, that was the book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So for the last segment tonight, I wanted to talk about something that's related to what I was saying in the last uh, previous segment about what we can contribute to the world. And one of the things I think all of us can and should be contributing to the world is to reduce needless suffering. So um, I say needless suffering because life involves pain, involves death. There is going to be suffering, but we can see at times there is a lot of suffering that could be avoided by means that we have. So, for example, let's say there is a village where they have water, but some of the citizens don't have access to water and they die from lack of water. Well, that would be needless suffering, avoidable suffering. And of course, that village analogy is not, um, uh, doesn't take much of a stretch to realize that's the world we live in today where there are many people that don't have access to basic resources that we do have enough of. And so there is a lot of needless suffering in the world, needless pain, and even needless death that is still occurring. We've gotten better about it and made progress in recent decades, but we still are falling short um, in the sense that many people are still suffering and also in the sense that we have even more capabilities than we used to have and are falling short of what we definitely can do. And so I'm very much big on that, that we should work towards that, that everyone has some basic human rights to have those basic needs met. But something that came to my mind um, working with some clients and just reflecting on some things is that I myself, uh, of course, a human being first, but as a psychologist, would still usually focus or almost only really thought of this mostly about physical or medical suffering. When I thought of ending needless suffering was things like water, food, medicines that are um, available. I think that's very, very important and something that we should very strongly focus on and work towards as part of our contributions, our gifts, um, in doing what is our responsibility. But I realized I was not thinking about the emotional suffering in the same way. And the reason why this came to my mind is that I was seeing some people in the world in general um, and with clients and in different types of work that were suffering in ways that were very avoidable in the sense that let's say if someone is suffering because of a taboo 
Well, that's avoidable suffering if we make it more okay to talk about something. Now, suicide can lead to actual death, of course. And so, for example, because of mental health taboos or taboos about talking specifically about suicide, it could lead to lives being lost. And of course, suffering too, emotional suffering happening before that point, which we can think of as needless suffering, avoidable suffering. Or, for example, things like sexuality or sexual orientation, where someone can feel that they are bad, have felt throughout history this way, but also um, it continues to be the case, that they might feel bad for if they're not heterosexual or if they are transgender or see themselves as different from what is quote-unquote a norm or considered the right way to be, they can feel horrible about themselves and suffer tremendously and unfortunately can lead to death in the form of suicide or other types of things that happen, including violence towards those individuals. And so it struck me that I hadn't focused myself in my own thinking or had that awareness that when we think of eliminating needless suffering, we we don't think of mental and emotional suffering. And so I think this is another bias that we have or an indication of the bias where we see physical medical pain as more quote unquote real than emotional pain. And again, myself as a mental health professional, I was realizing I even had this bias when I was thinking of eliminating needless suffering and that my mind would almost always and only go to the physical, but not these things. Now, of course, I promote these issues of reducing the stigma of mental illness, the stigma attached to um, seeking out mental health services, talking about suicide and other taboos, talking about issues related to sexual orientation, and just seeing all human beings as human beings and deserving of human rights. So in that way, I was trying to address this, what I, I would still realize as needless suffering, but I wasn't seeing it in that way because I think I was harboring partially that bias that the physical is the primary or that's where we focus on first. But I hope we can think about this in the sense of, for example, if someone is transgender today, now people have their own thoughts or beliefs on it. To me, I definitely believe that, um, and it's not just necessarily a belief in some of the ways we talk about it, but people's experiences are that they don't identify in the binary sense of male, female, or man, woman that we have, which that itself changes over time what it means to be a man or a woman or the norms. I'm not talking about male, female. I'm talking about man, woman, which is when we look at gender. And so not delving too deep into the definitions of it, but looking at it from a picture of current and historical, this is another area where we have made progress. If we look at in Western countries, or let's just say United States, even recently, a decade ago, We've been making progress in how we treat individuals who are trans, who don't, let's say, identify with their biological sex or see themselves uh, as non-binary. We've definitely made progress. And so what does that tell us? That uh, sometimes people will say, well, let's look at the mental health of individuals with certain, you know, identities or certain types of experiences. And I think it's important to look at those things, but if you don't look at the historical lens 
or the cultural context, you'll be missing a lot because just, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, it was harder to be trans in the United States. It's still hard and still a group that needs a lot of um, support and advocacy and allyship. But it was harder not because anything has changed. It got easier in any kind of way of experiencing itself. It just got changed in how people are treating and seeing individuals who are trans. There's been that type of a change. And so this is what I mean by needless suffering. We can understand that we can advance just like... um, If we could advance some type of treatment for a disease that was killing and hurting a lot of people, if we could advance it or we already had the capability or we could see that we can go towards it, what can we do to accelerate that? Because it's needless suffering. Because I think we all, most people who recognize that we should be treating individuals with respect regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity and any other factor like that, You can imagine a time, hopefully very soon, but let's just say 100 years from now, I think most people would assume that we would be even more, society will be even more tolerant, more accepting, and there will be a time where it won't even be an issue um, about being trans, especially if not, you know, we're already closer, I think, to sexual orientation, not being so stigmatized. Again, still, there is prejudice and discrimination there, but we're making a lot of progress where it won't even be a big deal. You know, I've mentioned this statement that I heard um, from someone that really was powerful. They said, I wasn't in the closet. Society built the closet around me because we're telling people they have something to hide. There's something shameful about who they are, how they are, um, how they, who they're attracted to, or how they identify, whatever it might be. So I really thought that was powerful that It wasn't that they went into the closet or they were born in the closet. Essentially, society created a closet around them, telling them there's something to hide. So if you imagine 100 years from now, when people are going to be even more tolerant, loving, accepting, and I think that makes a lot of sense, well, what can we do to make that happen faster? How can we reduce the needless suffering? People don't need to be in pain and to suffer in the ways that they do. And related to this, I, I said something, and it reminded me of something I uh, thought of recently, or seen people with this type of sentiment. Sometimes people will say, why do we have gay pride parades? Why would you have pride about something that's, like, let's say, your orientation? I read some quote from someone, I forgot who it was, said something like, why would you have pride for something you didn't work for, work towards, you were just gay, let's say. But it's not that the pride has happened Uh, in isolation from living in the historical context of this world and this society, the pride is a response to the fact that we had told people to be ashamed of who they are. So why do we have pride parades? It's because for so long society told people they had something to be ashamed of, to be ashamed about. So if you tell people the way you are is so bad, imagine if someone told you, um, let's say you have brown hair, people with brown hair are bad and not good and immoral and all these horrible things and you're you know wearing hats dyeing your hair to cover that you have brown hair like I have although most of it's white now but you have brown hair so you're hiding it from people and then you get to a point where you realize like why why are people telling me I'm bad for having brown hair 
you could understand, I hope you could, if you haven't experienced something like this, I'm imagining myself, if I was told that, that one day when you realized this is crazy, this was stupid, and I never should have to have been embarrassed or ashamed of my brown hair, you might want to have this brown hair pride of showing that to be like, I should have never had to have been afraid of this, and I'm going to be proud to be who I am. So it's not just pride out of nowhere. It's not pride because I want to have pride for something I didn't work for, which I think is a very Western type of way of looking at what pride is about. But it's a pride because I was told I had something to be ashamed of. I was not just told, I was shown, I experienced shame. I experienced pain because of this. And so now when I'm recognizing I have nothing I should have been ever ashamed of and no one does, I want to be proud of this. So I think there can be a time, now people might have different expressions of themselves throughout history or going forward in time, but it'll have a very different meaning where it'll be more of a historical thing that they'll have to have a sense that they had something to be ashamed of to then have that experience of pride. It might evolve over time, but currently we still have this type of an experience. It's not that old. Sometimes I think we forget that. Uh, because we've hopefully gone so used to it now that we forget that it wasn't that long ago that many things were not as accepted like gay marriage in the United States. And so when we think about the world we're living in, yes, I hope you do what you can to help in the physical suffering, the needless suffering where you live, around your neighborhood, country, and around the world, because there still is a lot of needless suffering that is going around. But I hope that if, like me, you focus more on the um, physical and medical types of sufferings that are there, to think about the needless emotional suffering, the things that happen when we don't talk about mental health issues and when we stigmatize it, the things that happen when we make people feel bad for being who they are, and that it's up to all of us to work towards those things, to eliminate the needless suffering that is out there in all forms and that we can do a lot to make that happen. So you don't have to cure cancer to reduce suffering. You can just have conversations. And I know that's sometimes looked at as the, you know, uh, okay, if I just post something on Twitter, I'm curing, you know, people's ills. And no, I'm not suggesting that that itself is enough, but to recognize that you can be part of a process towards reducing the suffering of others. And if you want to be a part of that, make sure you're doing everything you can to do that. We all, I hope, should be taking that role and responsibility seriously to reduce the needless suffering, both physical, medical, mental, emotional, in any shape and form that it exists in the world. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.